Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Professor of Strategy and the War Room podcast editor here at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us today. On today's episode, we bring you another in our Great Captains series, and I'm going to wager that most of you haven't thought much about the subject of today's podcast, and you may not even know his name at all, uh, but Dr. Frank Jones, who's Professor of National Security and Strategy here at the Army War College, is here to make the case that we should add General Frederick Wyand to the list. Wyand was an American Army officer who commanded MACV, the Military Assistance Command Vietnam, and also served as Chief of Staff of the Army in the immediate aftermath of the war. So, Frank, thanks for joining me here today at War Room. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jackie. All right, so we'll start with a biography. So who is Frederick Wyand? Um, I'm give, guessing that, again, our listeners don't know much about him. So can you fill us in on his sort of early life and career in the Army before Vietnam? Yes, he uh, he's born in California in a north-central part of the state in 1916, and he graduates from the University of California at Berkeley in 1939 with a degree in criminology. He had thought he was going to become a criminologist. Uh, he was also an ROTC student when he was at Berkeley, and he was commissioned under what was then called a branch program. He was commissioned a second lieutenant in coast artillery in the U.S. Army Reserve in May of 1938. And in uh, 1940, he, September, he enters active duty and is stationed at the uh, Presidio of San Francisco with a Coast Artillery Regiment. And of course, on December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor is attacked, and he remains on active duty. And in 1942, and this is really an instrumental part or a really important part of his career, he's sent to the intelligence school at Camp Ritchie, Maryland. And by 1942, he's a major and he also t- attends some training on signals intelligence within the Army Security Agency. And shortly thereafter, he deploys to the China-Burma-India Theater, first uh, stationed in New Delhi, India, uh, with Joseph Stilwell, General Stilwell's headquarters in the G2 section, and then later transfers to Stilwell's headquarters in Burma in June of 1944. At that time, Uh, Wyan is responsible for integrating intelligence from communications interceptions and direction finding and from human sources to include uh, working with the OSS Detachment 101 to create order of battle information. And I think this experience with Stillwell will be of great value to him, as I'll later explain, years later in Vietnam. After the war, he is assigned to the War Department, and he is recommended by one of his senior officers, a general by the name of Hull, that if he wants to stay in the Army, he should transfer the infantry branch. And Wyan decides to do that. Uh, He accepts a regular commission after the war, transfers to the infantry, and goes through the advanced school in 1949. And a year later finds himself in Korea uh, because of the war breaks out there. And actually uh, spends the next part of the next few years in Korea as both a staff officer and also as a battalion commander. Uh, And uh, he learns a particularly important lesson in in Korea, and that is uh, fire support, the importance of artillery. After the war, he uh, 
returns to Washington and serves as in the office of the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Financial Management. But really what's important here is that he becomes the speechwriter for Robert S. Stevens, the Army Secretary, and then later for Stevens' successor, uh, Wilbur Brucker. And then that gives him some insights into management of the Army enterprise at a very senior level. He enters the War College, the National War College in 1957, then commands a battle group in Berlin after that, and then is promoted to a brigadier general and serves there as the chief of staff of the U.S. Army Europe Rear in the Comz, which is then located in Orleans, France. Up to this point, he's had traditional assignments. He's led troops um, in, in various conflicts in combat, but he's also had assignments in Washington, uh, like you said, as a, as a speechwriter um, on the staff. And so has a actually a pretty, it sounds like he has a pretty wide background um, that are all sort of preparing him for what's going to happen later in his, in his career. Yes, I mean, he points out in interviews that he did that he has the background in coast artillery, intelligence, infantry, and the experience in Europe gives him the logistical background. So he's gaining a multidisciplinary sense of how Mm -hmm. the Army works. And then to add to the political aspect, he also serves as the Deputy Chief for Legislative Liaison. So until that point, in 1964, he takes command of the 25th Infantry Division in August of that year. So I think that um, that's one thing that we might sort of keep in keep in mind as we think about the development of great captains early in their careers, a breadth of experience, uh, that they're not just sort of one track. Folks, how does Wyand uh, get to Vietnam then? Wyand takes command of the 25th Infantry Division and is told that the unit will be deploying to South Vietnam. And he begins a series of preparations, of exercises, training. Uh, they create a, uh, simulate a, a Vietnam vet uh, village there at um, its location in Fort Schaffner. And he uh, also begins to have his officers and his NCOs visit Vietnam, as he does himself, uh, so that he can get a sense of what's happening. And the unit begins deployment to Vietnam in December of 65. And it goes in rather a piecemeal fashion with various brigades going uh, sequentially, um, and he begins to operate in Vietnam uh, in the area known as the Kantum Pleiku area, and uh, that's by April of 66, the whole division is there, ready to operate. So this is during the period 66 into 67 is going to be a period where sort of search and destroy missions are um, maybe the way we think about the American effort in South Vietnam, and what is what does Wayan do as a as a commander of field forces in Vietnam um, that helps us understand his approach to the to the conflict? Wayan gets a very good sense right from the beginning of how he's going to he and his division are going to operate in this in this environment. And as you mentioned, part of this is the search and destroy aspect of it, uh, which he calls in, in one of his interviews a sweep operation. But he also begins uh, long-range patrolling, and he also makes some decisions about how one begins to control the countryside. And he decides that a 5,000-meter circle 
is a good size for a company-sized unit to work with local people, such as provincial authorities, local militias, and the Arvin division that's in his area. And so his idea is to have these circles touching each other in order to keep the Viet Cong at bay. He will command in the, this area for until March of 1967. And uh, he remarks at that time in an interview that he could see the quality of U.S. personnel by 1967 is starting to, to decline. That includes the non-commissioned officers, the battalion commanders, and, and personnel being pulled out of West Germany, and that approach is affecting the force capabilities in Europe. Um, he is not, and makes this comment, that he's not in favor of strategy of attrition or search and destroy and body counts. He finds the war is really a war of defen a defensive one, and the only realistic offensive capability is really our air power, and he begins to call that the hammer. But he does draw upon his experience as an intelligence officer, especially within communications intelligence, and he also realizes the importance of armored cavalry and tanks, particularly in keeping lines of communication open. Um, he's very supportive of pacification units and security of the South Vietnamese people becomes a priority. He believes that the search and destroy mission concept undermines this approach because Westmoreland would order the division, his division and others to seek and find the NVA, the North Vietnamese Army, or the Viet Cong main force units. And often in doing so, they'd leave the province uncovered and the Viet Cong would be in the province undermining pacification issues. So he believes it's very difficult to make progress on pacification using this type of approach. He then, in 1967, becomes the deputy commander of the 2nd Field Force under General Bruce Palmer, and then Westmoreland promotes him to command the 2nd Field Force. So uh, it's a core-sized element. He has under his command the 25th Infantry Division, the 1st and 9th Infantry Divisions, later the 101st, and a tie division, two independent brigades, as well as artillery units and logistical units. And when he takes command of this uh, does he carry over his understanding of the military situation and the political situation, sort of as you've described? It, it sounds a little bit at odds uh, with the higher headquarters, with the sort of command's view of the war. But by, I guess by 67, we're starting to see um, these these pacification efforts um, across across the country. Does Wyand, is he successful in implementing his sort of strategic vision for how to conduct the war? I think he's capable of understanding how the second field force, Vietnam, is in an area of the Arvin Third Corps tactical zone. That's the area around Saigon, and that'll become important later during the Tet Offensive. But he is, a, as I said, a proponent of pacification, and he begins to work very diligently on that program through a new apparatus which the United States sets up in conjunction with the Republic of Vietnam, the South Vietnamese government, called the CORDS program, dealing with civil operations and, and rural development. And so he begins to make great use of that. However, I will tell you that by late July 1967, Wyand has come to the conclusion that the war is a stalemate. He is at a social gathering in early August of 1967, and he mentions to an American reporter by the name of 
Murray Fronsom, that he believes that is the case, that the war is now in a stalemate and that the United States really has to reconsider its position. And Fromson is a CBS News correspondent, and Fromson will later tell back in 2006 when he finally gets clearance from Wyan to reveal that he was the source of a CBS and New York Times article, a CBS news report and a New York Times article, that Wyand says to Fromson, quote, and I'll quote from what Fromson wrote, Westy just doesn't get it. The war is unwinnable. We've reached a stalemate, and we should find a dignified way out, end quote. What becomes important about this is that Fromson and a New York Times reporter by the name of R.W. Apple Jr., uh, meet with Wyand and have an off-the-record discussion about the situation. And from that, Apple writes a major piece on Vietnam that appears in the New York Times on August 7, 1967, with the headline, Vietnam, the Signs of Stalemate. And basically, what Apple does is he builds a lengthy article around what Wyan perceives as to be the problems in Vietnam. Why is it now a stalemate? And Wyan points out the enemy tactics, the use of, if you will, of hit and run. He points out that uh, the size of Vietnam really requires a much larger force than the United States is really willing to put on, on the ground there. In fact, he estimates perhaps it might be as, as many as 8 million troops. That pacification is behind schedule. And he does not have very favorable things to say about the South Vietnamese military in terms of a lack of, he argues that they have a lack of commitment, that they have inept inept troops, and there is corruption. Uh, This article, of course, causes a a major flap, if you will, in in Washington, D.C. And uh, he uh, is never known until many years later, as I mentioned, that he is the source. source. Yeah. So that's a. I think that's that's important, right? That it's it's sort of not attributable because, of course, he continues to serve in Vietnam um, even after right after this article comes out. So, what are his next steps in terms of his command in Vietnam? I think the next major step is the Tet Offensive, the North Vietnamese Vietnam Cong Offensive, and and uprising that they expected. Uh, that would occur in January of 1968, the so-called Tet Offensive. And Wyand is often credited, and and rightfully so, with being the savior of Saigon. That when the attacks from the NVA, and principally the Viet Cong main forces, occur, uh, he has already prepared his division and the other divisions he has, as well as the Australian-New Zealand Task Force. He has put them in places where they are ready to defend Saigon. And this is important because uh, what occurs is that he begins to use his intelligence background, and by using signal intercepts, looking at the the amount of chatter that's going on, direction-finding equipment that shows movement of units, and some interrogation of uh, prisoners, as well as some written documents that are found, 
he begins to realize that Westmoreland wants him to move north. He says, no, I need to re- have these units stay near Saigon because I believe Saigon is one of many places in which a, an offensive is going to take place. And he then begins to move his units uh, in the right place. And consequently, uh, he does save Saigon uh, from being overrun, possibly. And certainly, uh, Tansanut Air Base is certainly mm-hmm. a product where he sends one of his air armored cavalry units there to prevent the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese from overrunning that location. So we're seeing a pattern of both military competence and sort of political um, understanding of the of the wider war of what's happening. So after the Tet Offensive, which is considered by many right a turning point in in the war. We have uh, a change of command in 1968 uh, from Westmoreland to Creighton Abrams. And how does Wayand fit into this new, um, this new structure after, after Tet? Uh, he rotates out of Vietnam shortly after Westmoreland leaves. And he is assigned as uh, the chief of the con- reserve components, a, an assignment that he expressly did not want and told Westmoreland that. But Westmoreland has become the new chief of staff right. of the Army, and, and there is a good relationship between the two men. So shortly after that, Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge, in 1969, the Nixon administration has come onto office. Lodge, who is going to be the head of the U.S. delegation for the Paris peace talks, asks, and, and why knew him, and knew him, known him from Vietnam, asks Wyand to be the military advisor to the delegations. And uh, Wyand serves in that role. He travels to Vietnam every quarter to understand the situation on the ground. He is understandably concerned about how the war is going. Uh, He does not see the North Vietnamese as willing to offer any way to a peace with honor, as the Nixon administration is is characterizing it. Wyan himself characterizes the North Vietnamese negotiating position as uncompromising, uh, no movement, uh, no, no agreement on foundational points, and he becomes so frustrated by this experience uh, that he asks to be re- reassigned to Vietnam, even as a major general, uh, which he's already been promoted to lieutenant general during his time as the field force commander, uh, because he believes that uh, his knowledge of the war would be helpful more use there than they would be in any other position. He also has come to the conclusion that the Joint Chiefs are not, he blames them for not developing a military strategy that President Johnson or successor could sell to the American people. And so he uh, considers, as he reflects upon his experience in Vietnam, as attrition not being a viable strategy, uh, especially with a conscription army, the draft is still in play, and a democracy. And he believes the strategy that is basically search and destroy was foreign, as he says, to pacification. Mm -hmm. So he believes that's difficult to sell the American people because it just takes too long. And he, he believes political leaders cannot convince the American people that the enemy's casualties are substantial and the U.S. losses are small because they see what's happening in the media almost every night on mm-hmm. television. So does so Wyand goes back to Vietnam. 
after he's the military advisor, right? Yes, he is. He goes back to Washington so, very briefly, and then within two months, he's back in Vietnam. Back, back in country. So let's then sort of finish out his his Vietnam career. Um, how does it? We know how the Vietnam War ends, I suppose. Um, but but how does Wyand leave it? He uh, is reassigned to Vietnam as the deputy commander of the U.S. Military Assistance Command Vietnam under Creighton Abrams. His focus, of course, because of the Nixon administration, is on Vietnamization, that is the turning over of capability from the United States to its South Vietnamese allies. There's a drawing down of U.S. forces in South Vietnam, uh, but at the same time, there's an infusion of weapons and supplies to South Vietnam. The major event of that period of his time there is the 1972 uh, Easter Offensive by the North Vietnamese, uh, which is very much a surprise. Uh, Bill Colby, William Colby, who will be later famous as director of Central Intelligence, the head of CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, is heading up the CORDS program there, the Civil Operations Rural Development Program, and uh, they just are taken aback by that. And Wyand begins to understand how this whole unfolding since 1968 uh, is affecting the negotiations. The United States, he, he realizes, does not have the capability to understand what's happening in North Vietnam. But he does find that the army of the Republic of Vietnam does acquit itself well in this offensive and the fighting. But he also realizes that the U.S. B-52 bombers, air support, and U.S. advisors saved the country, and that significant areas are still not under control. Um, so he does question that Vietnamese may be succeeding, but it's not without U.S. military support in U.S. Yeah. air support particularly, and logistical and airlift and fire support. So as commander of MACV after... Uh, 1972, when Abrams leaves, he's interested in maintaining the initiative of the programs that Abrams started. He maintains an excellent a reputation with the American ambassador there, Ellsworth Bunker, the president of South Vietnam, President Q. And he's dealing, though, with a army and a military in general that's experiencing drug abuse, flagging morale, and tensions in the ranks. Sure. If we understand the the Vietnam War, um, it's not exactly one of the proudest, sort of most shining moments in the history of the American military. Like you said, by the time uh, the Americans leave, things have not gone well, uh, and things obviously will, will continue to deteriorate in Vietnam. And so it seems, on one hand, difficult to identify any American army commanders or military commanders as uh, sort of great captains who are part of this failed effort. Um, and so why would you say we should consider Wyand as a, as a great captain in a, in a failed war? I think that, uh, I believe that there are probably two or three points that are very relevant to this. On the first, he's seen by many as being a, a very competent commander of U.S. forces at the division and at the corps level and later at MACV. And that, that is a, an opinion expressed not only by military personnel, leaders themselves, other general officers, and political leaders, but also by State Department leaders, advisors, both in Washington 
and in the country of South Vietnam that are there. And he's also respected by the media. Murray Fromson will say that he's probably one of the most erudite generals that fought in the war. And I think when you look back on how Wyan commits himself to the, his involvement in Vietnam, his division command, his field force command, the negotiating delegation, and then his role as a leader of MACV, that's five years of his career. I don't believe any other military officer saw the Vietnam experience for what it was. But he also recognizes that he, uh, and I think this is very important, that in a democracy, military success is not sufficient. It requires political leadership. It requires military providing sound strategic advice. And it also requires the American people to understand and dedicate themselves or commit themselves to the national interests that the political leaders are espousing. I think there's uh, one story I'd like to tell if I could, Jackie, and that's uh, the story just after Tet where uh, Wyan meets with Walter Cronkite. And Walter Cronkite is, uh, wants to interview Wyan after the Tet Offensive, uh, and this is in February of 1968. And of course, Walter Cronkite is a prominent American news reporter and evening anchor, and uh, Westmoreland asks Wyan to undertake the interview, and Wyan is, is quite skittish about doing this, but finally agrees to it. And he does so because he has, believes he has a good story to talk about how intelligence on the enemy was good enough in the weeks preceding Tet to convince Westmoreland and others that a major enemy attack was in the making and that he should redeploy a number of combat units to the Saigon area and alert the entire command to expect enemy attacks. And that more importantly, as you mentioned earlier, that the, the, the narrative about, Viet, excuse me, about the Tet Offensive is that, in truth, what happened was a major part of the Viet Cong force uh, that Hanoi needed to achieve its objective of overthrowing the Saigon government is destroyed. Yeah, it's obliterated. Yeah, it's <laughs> obliterated. So I think that what you can say is that this is an important element, and he does have this interview with Cronkite, and he comes to the discussion of spending a large amount of time with him and pointing out some of the misjudgments or, or fatal mistakes that the Viet Cong made, that they, they and the North Vietnamese made, the communist leadership, that they had misjudged the people of South Vietnam, that they didn't rise up against the Saigon government, that the Viet Cong capability was overestimated by the Politburo in North Vietnam, and they failed to amass enough force against any vital objective that it permitted their attacking forces to defeat the U.S. and its allies. In response, Cronkite thanks him and tells him that he probably will not use any of the interview in his documentary <laughs> uh, because he had been to Hawaii, to Hawaii and he had seen the open graves containing the bodies of hundreds of, of innocent South Vietnamese civilians who had been slaughtered. And, and I quote from a memorandum that Wyan wrote right after the interview. He said that Cronkite, quote, had decided that he was going to do everything in his power to see that this war was brought to an end, end quote. Wyan later states that the inevitable result was that the documentary 
reinforced the conclusion the Tet Offensive was a great victory for Hanoi and an unmitigated disaster for the United States, when in fact the truth was that the offensive was a severe military defeat for the North Vietnamese and resulted in the decimation of the Viet Cong forces that were forced to surface to support Hanoi's offensive. Mm -hmm. So in general, I would say that this was a realistic appraisal, but he also understood that military strategy, military leadership in the field, combat capability and operations, even if they disagreed with the strategy, was not enough. That one in a democracy had to understand the role of other actors in achieving military victory. And I think that's perhaps the best, uh, the best case that we can, can make for great captains is that they are militarily competent and excellent, uh, but they understand the political context in which they operate. They understand the broader um, global and geopolitical contexts in which they operate and understand both the limits and the capabilities of military power. So, Frank, thanks so much for joining us today on A Better Peace. It's been a pleasure to have you back. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.